In a few moments' time, we're going to be going into Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be reading from there. But just before we do, I just want to say a bit of an aside to you if you're a mum this morning. And also to you if you're not a parent here this morning. Because I just feel like it's Mother's Day and I just want to say something on this theme for a moment. And I just want to underline the importance of what you're doing if you're a mother here today. Do you know in Hebrews chapter 11... It's a whole hall of fame of people of faith throughout the Bible who did incredible things for God, lived differently in contrast to their generation. And one of those key characters, in fact, the key character of the Old Covenant is a guy called Moses. You've heard of him. And he's right there in the hall of fame because he parted the Red Sea. He led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt towards the Promised Land. It says he didn't endure the pleasures of Egypt, but he he trusted God. But here's the thing. Do you know who appears in the line above Moses in Hebrews 11? His mum and his dad. Isn't that amazing? And that's the only thing it says about them, to be honest. It just says that we don't know anything else about their lives other than how it affected Moses. And this is often the role of you if you're a parent here today, that it's not necessarily about you and your ministry and your life. It's about what you're raising and producing. And for Moses' mum, she just took a couple of decisions, really. It says that she noticed that Moses was no ordinary child. Have you ever heard that phrase before? You probably have. In fact, if you're a parent, you probably used that about your own child. (laughs) Because uh, every parent, that's the job of parents. You see the potential in a child. You see what other people don't see. Isn't that right? Other people see a smile. And you say, I think I've got a great sense of humor. (laughs) Other people see a toddler run across the room. And you proudly look at him and you say, yeah, he's three months ahead of all his nursery pals. See, parents, you see things in your children, and your job is to call them out, and that's a wonderful, powerful thing. The other thing that she did was she made a plan. When the whole world was going crazy and kids were getting killed by the pharaoh, she did that thing that mums love to do. She made a plan. And she planned this incredible thing to basically make sure that Moses was rescued and was provided safety in his childhood So, mums, I just want to encourage you to keep going with what you're doing. It's often unglamorous, often unnoticed, but it's so, so important. This might be said of you one day. The kids that you raised are for for the glory of God. And let me also say to you, in that same story, it's full of non-parents as well. So to raise Moses, it didn't just require a good, faithful mum and dad. It required a huge number of other people. You had midwives who were protecting children's interests by refusing to go to the birth on time and to execute the Pharaoh's orders to to kill the baby. You had people working under the radar in society to ensure the well-being of children. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. You also had a Pharaoh's daughter who adopted Moses as her own child and raised him. Perhaps today, part of your role is to, to take children into your family or into your community and to care for them. It takes more than parents to raise a child. And I want to invite you to be a church that cares for the families of this church, even as two have stood before you today, 
and to be those who care and protect and provide and offer friendship to. So can we do that? That sounds good, doesn't that? Okay, well, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 16 in this series we're doing on Ephesians. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. So there's some strong words of warning in that passage that we read today, even that last sentence we read ended with these words, be very careful, be very careful. And I don't know if you noticed we had that snow uh, that came in a a week or so ago. And do you remember we had a red weather warning? I'd never even heard of a red weather warning before. I don't know if you had. And and I mean, I thought the amber one was bad enough. That was being stuck at home with kids and unable to go out. I thought, could it get any worse than this? But then they announced it was going to be a red, and I thought, I need to look into this. And what they were saying was that there's real danger to human life if you don't follow the advice given to you. And some of us heeded that advice, and we thought, you know what, let's just stay home, let's go sledging, let's go snowboarding, whatever it is. And, and we, we looked out at the sky in the morning, and it didn't look particularly any worse than normal. It looked like quite a nice then. But we thought, you know what, the experts are usually right. And so we stayed home. Some of us said, you know what, these weather forecasts, they're often wrong. And so there was a thousand people who got stranded on the M80 overnight because they thought, well, they're usually wrong about these things. And it turned out the forecast was right. You see, warnings come with a purpose. And the purpose is that we should engage with them and do something about them. In fact, for some reason, the, the, the action that most of us took when we heard it was a red weather warning was we went to Tesco's and we bought as much bread and as milk as we could find. 
Isn't that weird how us British people, we do that? We think there's snow coming, let's buy bread and milk in abundance because what we need is toast and hot chocolate when things are bad. I mean, there's surely other treats you could enjoy if you're off work and at home. But anyway, that's what we did. We cleared the shelves. Anyway, so these words... The Apostle Paul, he says, be very careful. He's giving a specific warning. That red weather warning, it came across the central belt. It was all about the people of central Scotland. Paul writes these words to a church in Ephesus, and he writes it to the church across the world, and he's saying, be careful. Be careful. This is about you. It's about your life. It's about this church. It's about your future. It's about eternity. And it's about this life. And he says the same thing in a different way. In verse 14, he says, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's the thing Paul is drawing attention to, that you can drift your way through life and not heed the warnings. And somebody is trying to rouse you today to say, It matters. It matters. What you do, what you believe, really matters. And he says the same warning again in verse 6. He says, don't be deceived with empty words. You know, this word, world is full of advice. It's full of opinion. It's full of people who are basically telling you, if you just love yourself, be yourself, and try to be happy, then that's all that's required. But in doing so, you can miss what the Apostle Paul and what God would instruct for you. And here's the invitation today. It's to wake up to the gospel of Jesus and its power in your life. And there's three things. There's three parts to this gospel that uh, Paul unpacks for us here. And the the very first sentence we read today, it said this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Now that sounds like a biggie, doesn't it? To follow God's example. But here's the thing we need to draw attention to. What is God's example? And if, you were to, if you've got a Bible and you look back to the preceding verse and the preceding chapter, what you see is these words. It says, um, uh, excuse me, sorry. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So what is the work of God that we're being told to emulate? This is the work of God, that he forgives sin. He forgives. This is the gospel, part one, stage one. It's to understand this point, that we are sinners who God has forgiven through the work and person of Jesus Christ. And this is the gift of God to you, forgiveness. We were reminded by that huge blanket of snow that came across the country of a prophecy that Isaiah brought to the people of God long before Jesus came. It said, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And there's something beautiful and pure when you look out on that landscape of snow. And when you see the cars trudging through it mixed in with all the salt and it's all black and dirty, you think, oh, that's horrible. But snow is pure. This is what God does in your life. He cleanses you. He forgives you. In fact, um, I know you like a good graph. So here we are. Here's a, here's a graph. This 
Let's imagine this is uh, time on the bottom axis, and this is, we could call this righteousness on this axis here. So how good you are, how holy you are, how morally perfect you are. And the person who scored 100% on this line is Jesus. The Bible says he never sinned, so he's up there. And if we were to rate ourselves on a scale, we, we might pick somebody who uh, is particularly noteworthy in terms of their example. You could t- pick somebody who, you know, of a past generation, Mother Teresa or, or somebody, anything incredible, life of self-sacrifice. And um, other people, there might be somebody you know, you think they're a particularly morally upright person. They might be here somewhere. And I mean, where would you put me on this? I, I, I don't know. Uh, let's say I'm down here somewhere. Let's, let's say you're just up there somewhere. And here's the thing. If we were to plot our own righteousness, all of us fall short of Jesus. We're down here somewhere and we trudge through life, maybe improving a little bit, maybe f- falling foul and hitting some lows. But this is what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. When somebody puts their faith in Jesus and that he's taken their sins away. Though they're down here, the moment they believe, they get attributed with the righteousness of Jesus, completely forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. This is how God sees you now. He sees you as perfect in his sight and pure, even though the reality of that may not be true in terms of your behavior. Now, Here's the other thing that happens. Um, So it says in in verse 1, it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. So here's the other part of the gospel that the gospel gives to us. is this: It gives us a new identity that we're actually loved by God. If you understand gospel part 1, that God forgives, then the trouble is that when you sin again... The trouble is you feel awfully guilty and you feel like, well, God must hate me because having forgiven me, now I've wronged him again. And you must think God must turn against me and you, and you can end up with a, a, a pelican crossing style relationship with God. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. The Bible says that he loves you as his child. We've enjoyed that in worship today. He can't love you any more than he does right now. He can't love you any less than he does right now because you're loved in Jesus and he sees you as pure. But then the third part of the gospel that these verses are talking about today is this, that we grow in his likeness. See, we're forgiven, we're loved, and we're transformed. That's the power of the gospel. Forgiven, Loved, transformed. And God is about a great transforming work in your life. So let's go back to our diagram here. Here's Jesus, and here's us, and here's the moment we become a Christian. This is what happens. The Bible says with ever-increasing glory, we reflect his likeness. So over time, we become more and more like him. And then the Bible says one day we will see him face to face. And in that moment, perfection Actual behavioral perfection will happen and we will be like him in actuality as well as called righteous. And God is about this work in your life right now. So here's the warning that Paul is giving. He says, make sure that you're on this trajectory. 
Make sure that you're not settling for some other view of Christianity that simply says, well, I'm forgiven or just I'm accepted without any change. No, here's the deal. Forgiveness, love, and transformation. And God is transforming you. And he's doing it today. And he's doing it this week. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we grow in his likeness? And the answer, again, comes in those first verses. It says, we're to keep Jesus front and center. It says, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we've drawn to the attention of Jesus. And Jesus lived the perfect human life. And here's the interesting thing about Jesus. Do you notice that Jesus lived everything together? There wasn't a spiritual side to Jesus and a physical side to Jesus. Jesus didn't have a home life and a work life. We tend to live our lives in these compartments. We say, well, yeah, that's where I'm at work, this is where I'm at home. we, We have multiple identities. Jesus had one identity. He was... Son of God and Son of Man in, the, in human flesh. But see how that outworked in his life. It says, He loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If I was to ask for a, a not a show of hands, but if I was to, to ask the question of this room, who likes to worship here? Straight away, some of you, if I asked that question, would, would say, I love worship, I love coming to sing, I love coming to declare God how much I love him. I will give you all my worship. You're you're immediately drawn to the sense of singing and pouring out your heart to God. And that's a wonderful thing, that's a powerful thing. For some of you, when I say worship, you think, oh, I didn't think about singing. I I kind of think about the way I live my life. I think about, you know, the people I'm with and and how I kind of treat them and, and those kind of things. And if we're not careful, we can say it's either this or that. Do you notice what it says about Jesus? It says, As Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's the thing about your life. It's serving others. It's being a good neighbor to other people. But it's also about loving God. And those are one and the same thing. And Paul in these verses is telling us how to live this life of following God's example in Christ. And then he goes on to tell us that the whole of our culture is opposed to us doing this, and therefore we need to be careful about the culture that we are in. And he presents this surrounding culture that uh, the, the people of Ephesus lived in. And here's some of the noteworthy things that he said about it. He said that that culture back then, 2,000 years ago, Things that were the hallmark of that culture were sexuality and sex and an obsession with it and impurity and greed and materialism and the love of stuff. It sounds like a pretty dark world back then, doesn't it? Who would want to live in a world that I'm so glad we've moved on 2,000 years later? That we're not into any of that stuff today. No, hey, the, the Bible is white hot relevant today. Paul is wanting to. Be careful about this world that you're living in, this culture which seeks to shape you and teach you. Let's uh, take a look at a a drawing I prepared earlier. 
Um, if you can't read the words, don't worry too much. But here's the point that he makes, because there's a lot of words in that passage, so I want you to see the overall thing that he's saying. What he's saying is, this culture, the culture in Ephesus is like this, 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 and this, all of these words on the white. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, greed. He talks about being fruitless. He talks about obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, emptiness, secrecy, shame, darkness. And the worst part of that whole lifestyle is that there's a judgment to come, which we're to take warning of. But the main point he's making in this passage is this. He calls us, as somebody prophesied this morning, God's holy people. And what he says in this sea of other values, God is building a community, a people that is in stark contrast. There's not a hint of this to be shown in this place. God's holy people, his church. And he says this is a place of thanksgiving, a place of pleasing God. A place of goodness, righteousness, truth. A place where we're awake and alive and forgiven. And this is the place, he says, is the kingdom of Christ and God. And actually when you analyse many of these other values that are knocking around in the waters around us, you could evaluate them this way and say, well, it's a basic living for yourself. It's a kingdom of self. So Paul calls it idolatry. He says, this is the big worry. It's not about a particular list of sins. When God calls you to holiness, he's not particularly interested in having a long list of things and whether you're adhering to them. He's interested in the heart. He's interested in whether you're actually falling prey to another idol that will take you away from him. There are powerful idols that would seek to lead you and have your allegiance. But Paul's point is, this is improper. So he talks about things that you and I just deal with every day. He take, talks about greed. We could call that materialism. We live in a world that requires money. You can't get on in life without having money to spend and to trade and all of those things. But what you can do is you can stop it getting into your heart. John Wesley, the famous 19th century preacher, said this. He said, money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out my hands as quickly as possible, lest it find a way into my heart. He knew the temptation that having stuff can cause for a Christian. It wasn't that New Testament Christians didn't have resources. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul addresses a group of wealthier Christians. And he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth. Don't follow the idol of materialism, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. He says, don't be led by the love of stuff, but rather use your stuff to love the world. Yeah, we could apply greed in all sorts of ways. You know, in our generation, we have a love of what we call leisure time more than any other generation before us. We almost have it as a rite of passage that, oh, it's my leisure time. 
I must watch this many Netflix box sets a week. And here's the thing about that. When, when we live to just please ourselves, it robs us of an opportunity to serve and love God. Uh, impurity. It's a loose term that Paul uses. You could use it to talk about conversations or jokes that you wouldn't want Jesus overhearing. Sexual immorality. Uh, the Greek word is pornea, which we get things, words like pornography from. The thing about sex is it's a wonderful gift from God. And he designed it for the good of the human race. And he gave it explicitly and uniquely as a gift to married couples to be part of the glue that should hold them together in love and union. Sexual immorality is anything outside of that boundary. And what this teaches us is this, that our identity isn't found here. Our identity isn't found in sexuality. Because that would be to devalue anybody who doesn't function sexually. Your identity is found in being a child of God. Your identity is found in being one of God's holy people, loved by him, accepted by him. Find your identity in the right place. I love uh, uh, Mary's word earlier. God takes us from victim to victory. When we read these words and we think, oh, I'm, I, you can find yourselves wishing something different for your life, but actually God leads you into victory. The family of God, we have a different set of values in, in our family. Sometimes our kids will say to us, you know, in so-and-so's family, they're, they're allowed to watch 12 hours of TV every day. In so-and-so's family, they're, they're allowed Xboxes in their bedrooms, and they're allowed to eat sweets every day. And you just know it's not true. But you can't really get in touch with all the parents and just ascertain the true facts. So we answer with usually just this one liner every time, well, you're not in their family. That's not how we do it in our family. And, you know, if, if it doesn't go well after that, sometimes we give them the choice. We say, which family do you want to be in? <laughs> and sometimes reluctantly they'll agree that they do like our family. Not always immediately, but... But here's the thing, the family of God, there's a unique set of wonderful values. Paul says, you've got to make your choice, and you've got to make a right choice here with the way you live your life. He says, because remember when you followed all this stuff, it didn't end anywhere pretty. It ended in the place of judgment. It ended in a place of darkness. It ended in a place where you felt deeply ashamed and empty. The people of God, we have so many wonderful things to thank God for. Holiness isn't following a set of negatives so that we don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. 1 John 2.6 says this, whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. It's to follow the positive example of Jesus. And let me give you the four points of application that Paul makes here to make sure that you are following Christ's example. Here's the first one. You're to self-identify as holy. You know, I thought the world nicked some terms sometimes. We can nick them back, can't we? Self-identify 
as holy. This is who you are now. What does he say in verse 8? He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Here's Paul's invitation to you. It's not to be who you're not. Some of you feel like, well, that's just, I'm not a very good person. I'm not very good at being holy. Paul says, no, that, that's who God's made you. Your spiritual DNA has changed. Be the person that God has made you. Don't be the old person, the old you, the old flesh. Uh, Augustine, who was one of the, the great saints of old, and before he'd become a Christian, he'd lived uh, with a girlfriend. And after he was wonderfully saved, he was walking down the road one day, and his old mistress saw him, and she shouted his name, and he kept on walking. And she shouted his name again, and he saw her, but he kept his eyes straight forward and walked, and she t- continued crying after him and ran after him. And finally, she looked at him and she said, Augustine, it is I. And he kept walking and he said, I know, but it is no longer I. If you're a Christian, you're not the you you used to be. You're forgiven, you're loved, and you're holy. Here's the second thing that we can do in this, uh, this fight of faith. Verse 10 says, find out what pleases the Lord. So here's the truth. We all have 24 hours in a day. You do, I do. We spend about eight of those sleeping. We probably spend about eight of those at work, typically. We spend eight of those doing other things, whether that's parenting or whether it's leisure time or whether it's seeing people or going to small groups, all of those things. We have choices we make with those elements of time. It's not... when, when Paul's saying, find out what pleases the Lord. He's, saying, he's not saying, just find a few more hours a day to do the Lord's will. He said, no, whatever you're doing, do it for the Lord. So here's the thing. If we're not separating our life into compartments, what it means is this. When I go to work for eight hours a day, I'm going to try to do that in a way that pleases the Lord. With everything I am, I'm going to not just make it about my own reward, my own pay packet at the end of that, but I'm going to live my life and do that job in such a way as Jesus would say, yes, that's exactly how I'd do it if I had that job. Loving God, loving your neighbor, find out what pleases the Lord. Ask yourself the question, what kind of employee does God want me to be? What kind of parent does God want me to be? In all your relationships, in all your doing, Ask yourself, how can I please God? Here's the third thing. So that's two positives. Self-identify as holy. Find out what pleases the Lord. Thirdly, avoid unrighteous living. Verse 11. It says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness. Sometimes there's a running away, just like Joseph did in the Old Testament. He ran away when sin was prevalent. He thought, I will not be near this. Sometimes you need to have the courage to run away from a situation that would cause you to be compromised. Fourthly, we illuminate. Verse 13 says, Everything is exposed by the light becomes visible. The word of God is a light to our path. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
See, this world out here is a world where we don't really want people to know the darkness of what's going on in our life because it makes us ashamed. And it brings us to a place where we don't talk about it. There will be parts of you that you would be so embarrassed if other people knew. But the gospel gives us confidence. When we're in this place, when we know we're forgiven and loved and being transformed, we can begin to talk about those things. We can tell people, maybe one or two friends in church or a small group leader, we can say, actually, I've got a struggle here. I haven't talked to anybody else about it. And what you find is, when you confess your sins, it doesn't push you out here again. And everybody says, gosh, nobody else has that problem around here. Rather, it reinforces this set of values, transparency, forgiveness, goodness, righteousness, truth, walking in the light. It's powerful when we illuminate things that were formerly in the dark. And when we do, we're reminded of this wonderful fact that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. When we bring things into the light, it helps us to see better. Have you ever tried to fix something in the dark? Doctors, have you ever tried to do surgery in the dark? You need the light. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. It's time to wake up to being God's holy people. It's thought that those words, wake up, O sleeper, were part of a baptism hymn that would be sung routinely at Christian baptisms. And it could be today that some of you are thinking, well, I'm kind of in tension between these two worlds here. And I I feel like I'm often out here and sometimes in there. Baptism is a great statement to make because it says this. I'm now living here. I'm identifying as part of God's holy people. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm being transformed and I'm committed to this path that God has me on. Maybe today God wants you to commit to getting baptized. Maybe you could chat to a small group leader or me or somebody afterwards and say, yeah, I feel like that's for me. Baptism is a wonderful moment where you say goodbye to the old way of life and you welcome the new. You know, Jesus said, broad is the road to destruction, but narrow is the road to eternal life. And that's why all of this is important. And today it could be that you're here and you've never clearly identified Jesus as your saviour. You've never asked him to forgive your sins and to welcome you into his family and to put you onto this new trajectory of Christ-likeness. And you know, that's just a prayer away. And today we're going to close in just a moment. And I want to invite you, if you feel on the outside today, I want to invite you to the inn. And you do that by putting your trust in Jesus, what he did for you on the cross, and the gift of life that he wants to give you.